Welcome back to the Starbase Indie Podcast, where we talk to and about people who are inspired by Star Trek or science fiction to work towards hopeful futures in the real world. So, Tom, let's start by having you introduce yourself and talk a little about what you know about spaceflight. Sure. Uh, My name's Tom Rathjen, and uh, I have uh, worked at uh, NASA for most of my uh, career, a little over about 31 years, starting way back in uh, in 1987. I worked at uh, the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas, uh, for the first Oh, 20 or 21 years, and then finished my uh, career with about 10 or 11 years at NASA's headquarters in Washington, D.C. And most of that time, I primarily worked on human spaceflight, working uh, the shuttle program, working uh, space human factors, uh, research and technology development, uh, working uh, space medicine, uh, and the uh, what used to be called the Constellation program, which was going to be uh, NASA's return to the moon, all while at JSC. And then uh, after going to headquarters, I continued to work on on uh, the uh, Constellation program that evolved into what we have today as the Artemis program that I know we'll talk about, and then also worked on the uh, uh, initial phases and the creation of the uh, commercial crew program, which has, you know, led to so many exciting things happening uh, today in in commercial human space flight. And I retired in 2018. And since then, I've been working for the Aerospace Corporation as sort of a consultant or subject matter expert in human space flight, doing some independent assessments of of uh, NASA's human space activities and uh, and uh, and some other uh, related uh, activities, and uh, I've been enjoying during this time beginning to kind of uh, present at uh, some of our Star Trek and science fiction forums, where there is a lot of interest in what NASA is doing and what uh, and what uh, is happening in uh, in human space flight. So uh, happy to do this podcast. I guess what this is probably the. Third or this, fourth thing yeah, posted. this will be the at least the third one that you've been on. Um, but you know, this is a field that keeps evolving. So I feel like you are going to be a regular guest talking about what's new and exciting in human spaceflight because it keeps changing. I, I hope so. I was I was hoping to do that through this podcast and the various conventions we attend and uh, uh, and offer uh, offer those those insights. It's been also exciting to start to talk. Uh, to other uh, uh, areas like uh, schools and uh, and uh, even some interest in some churches and things to uh, uh, go out and uh, kind of you know spread the news of of human space flight and and you know provide that inspiration for folks to get involved and young people to get involved in STEM education and uh, engineering and so forth. So, yeah, and it was in a recent presentation that you said there have been humans in space continually since October 31st, 2000. That's longer, I think, than people would, uh, who aren't in this field would know off the top of their heads. Uh, but- de- definitely. And it's still, it still, it blows my mind when I, you know, think about that it's been, you know, more than 22 years now and you know it's kind of interesting when i do some of the talks to you know ask before i say that is you know uh you know who thinks there's humans in space now and and uh, you know see who's really aware of it but to think about that that it has been since uh yeah halloween in the year 2000 the first crew uh with uh, bill shepard the american astronaut and two russians launched on a uh, a russian soyuz spacecraft to make that first what we call expeditions to uh, to the very beginning of the International Space Station. And I think they arrived uh, a couple of days later, uh, early November, uh, arrived at the space station, which at the time was just, you know, two modules uh, uh, put together uh, um, and and began their, their uh, stay for many months. And ever since that point in time, we have never left the International Space Station. There have always been crews. The sizes have varied. Some crews overlap. And so sometimes there's more you know, people on board uh, than other times. But it, it's really quite amazing that even during some of the uh, 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 you know, pro- times when we had problems, like a big one was the Columbia shuttle accident where uh, you know, losing that shuttle 
uh, and, and the shuttle program, the other three shuttles being grounded for uh, several years, two or three years, uh, seriously impacted the plans uh, to provide food and logistics and water and fuel and all these other things to the space station that it needed. And we became solely dependent on the Russian vehicles. And thank goodness for uh, you know, a reliable spacefaring partner like that, that plans could be adjusted and and occupancy scaled back. And, and we were able to keep the space station crewed uh, during those dark years. And, and the Russians have had issues, too. You know, they've had some their supply vehicle is called the Progress. It's basically an uncrewed Soyuz. And they, there were some accidents involving that that interrupted Russian side of the logistics. And and, you know, but we've been able to maintain and then. We retired the space shuttle, you know, back in 2011, and it took a lot longer to get the next crewed space vehicles from the U.S. ready to fly. And so that had to be uh, uh, adjusted uh, plans accordingly. And and through all of that, we've managed to keep crew on board continuously orbiting the Earth for uh, more than 22 years now, which is which is just fascinating. And and not only keep them uh in space, but also keep them, you know, fed and supplied, even if there were interruptions. So that's very, it's a pretty impressive accomplishment. It, it really is a, a, a human feat, an international human uh, feat that that has, uh, has occurred and, 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 and being productive, you know, they're not just, you know, there to set a world record, you know, I mean, they are, are, are working, you know, it's producing um, uh, science and, and other things. So they're not just floating around in in space. <laughs> right. Um, so now, so let's define what exactly do we mean when we say in space? There are some parameters for that. Yeah, there certainly are, and you know, and there's no one answer. You know, when I've when I was you know when I've said that that we've been on the space station or in space for uh, 22 tw more than 22 years now. Of course, I'm talking about orbit. You know, you're in you're in orbit. The space station. Uh, operates between two and three hundred. I think it's right about two hundred and forty-six uh, miles above uh, above the surface right now. But you know, in that range, two to three hundred miles, the space shuttle operated in that same. Well, it's what we call a low Earth orbit uh, 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 location, uh, and so you know that's certainly space uh, uh, where you are in the you know complete vacuum environment and. And uh, and well out of the uh, you know atmospheric atmospheric influence of the Earth for the most part, although it, you know it, it there's not a continuous line where all of a sudden the air ends. You know as you as you rise in altitude, it just thins out and thins out and thins out and thins out until you know you're talking about molecular you know levels of 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 uh, uh atmosphere or oxygen or other gases that even exist up where the space station is and 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 over a long enough time you know that will cause an orbit to decay the drag from that you know extremely extremely molecular size atmosphere you know will still be enough to uh, that you can't stay there indefinitely without putting some more juice into your orbit you know firing your engines or or whatever but uh but, you know, everybody agrees, okay, that's space. Well, you know, there's been a lot of, especially with commercial crew, and I, we'll talk more about that, but with, uh, uh, you know, civilians flying on suborbital uh, uh, vehicles now, you know, what do they, how high do they have to go to be considered astronauts that they went to space? And, you know, the, the generally accepted international standard is right at... Um, uh, well, it's it's uh, 100 kilometers is internationally what they use, which for us is about 62 miles. And they call that the Carmen line, which is, you know, been kind of just this internationally accepted definition that we humans invented, you know, to say that's where space begins. And and so now you have these, you know, commercial space vehicles that just barely cross that line for a little bit. And the people on board, you know, can say, OK, we've been to space. Um uh, you know, in the past, uh, NASA's used, you know, even lower, like 50 miles uh, back in the early days of the space program uh, when it was uh, 
you know, defining requirements for its base vehicles and things like that. So, so no one answer. Generally, the 62 miles or 100 kilometers is accepted. But, you know, certainly when you're spending time in orbit for days or weeks or months, uh, you know, you are living in space. That makes sense. <laughs> Absolutely, because if you're in orbit, even if you're not above that line, you still first are completely dependent on the vehicle that you're in, right? You can't breathe outside of it, and it's. Uh, I can see there's probably a lot of other similarities where that line isn't a hard line. Right, 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 and uh, you know, you, for uh, one interesting thing to think about is what it's like in that you know or low Earth orbit uh, altitude, like where the space station is. When you're in orbit, which you know, without getting too much into the physics of it, it basically means you are you are falling, and but you have a a, a horizontal velocity that's fast enough so that you fall along with the curvature of the Earth. You know, you're just so you're constantly falling but you're going fast enough sideways that you never come down and hit the hit the land you know and so that velocity varies depending what your altitude is and so for for that low earth orbit where people now have been living for 20 more than 22 years and where the shuttle flew it's about a 90 minute uh, uh orbit in other words you know you go all the way around the earth once every hour and a half so every hour and a half you get a sunrise and a sunset and uh and transition around the earth now you're not staying over one place because you know the earth is rotating under you and in that low earth orbit um that's why you see these if you ever see these uh, uh flat maps that have an orbital track it looks like a sine wave going up and down you know uh and that's that's because of this you know complex uh uh, 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 integration of the movement of the earth and the, and the altitude you're at and the speed you're going. If you, if you want to be, uh, uh, over uh, the same spot while you're orbiting earth, and that's called a geosynchronous orbit where a lot of satellites are like communication satellites that you put up and, you know, they're, they're providing your, your, your internet or, or your, uh, cable TV or whatever from, uh, uh, from space. Uh, and that's much, much higher than this low earth orbit where our astronauts have have functioned but uh, you know it all depends on how fast you're going how high uh, you achieve uh, uh, to be in that in that uh, orbital plane oh that's very cool i never understood the technicalities of that before yeah yeah so you said the people who are in space well first who's in space right now so um you know, it's also fun. I think, you know, when I talk to people, if you, uh, you know, first find out who even knows there's people in space and that we've had people and that's an interesting thing. And then the next thing I'm always interested in is, is, you know, well, how many do people think, you know, once they accept it, oh, okay, yeah, we've got people up there flying. And the, you know, the number to me is surprisingly large, you know, I'll usually ask are there one to three or three to five or more than five. And most of them are like, yeah, there's a couple, you know, but today, uh, there are 10 human beings in orbit around the Earth. And to me, that's a big number. You know, the space shuttle normally flew with anywhere from five to eight. Apollo had three people. You know, the Russian space program had, you know, usually three people back in the, you know, the 70s when we were growing up. And even their space station, the Mir space station, usually had two or three. Uh, uh, and so the fact that we are now... And this is, and this, by the way, isn't a crew handover period. This is the ten people that are all there together for the long haul uh, up into space right now. Now, it's funny if you had, if we had done this podcast uh, just a few days ago, the answer would have been fourteen, which is huge, uh, because there was a crew handover happening on the International Space Station where the uh, the four astronauts that. Uh, just went up on the uh, the SpaceX Dragon mission that we known as Crew Six had just arrived, and those four crew that had come on the previous Dragon, known as Surprise Crew Five, hadn't left yet. And in fact, they had to stay a little bit longer because the weather was bad. You know where they were going to return and and splash down, and so they kept them there a little longer, and they didn't come back till I think it was over this just this uh, past weekend, just a few days ago. So, but today it's uh, it, it's um, Interesting. So there's 10 people. And by the way, you know, spoiler alert, they're not all on our International Space Station. 
Um, right now, there are seven crew members on the International Space Station. We have uh, um, uh, four, uh, I'm sorry, three Americans. There are three Russians, and there is a uh, an astronaut from the United Arab Emirates flying right now uh, that went up on the SpaceX uh, mission with the uh, 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 with the uh, one Russian and and two of the Americans. One American that's there actually went up uh, on the uh, latest Soyuz uh, that flew to space station. Interestingly enough, right now I could just describe they're all men on the on the space station. And, uh, you know, other than uh, other than um, the United Arab Emirates person, uh, uh, there's not a lot of diversity. You know, we have three Russians and and three uh, white male Americans. It's kind of unusual, to be honest. You know, if you look at past missions, uh, there's been a lot of diversity. It is not the days like in the, uh, uh, you know, Apollo, Mercury, Gemini program and even very early shuttle where, uh, uh, you know, the crews were very much in that, you know, kind of military american male uh, uh model uh just uh, uh the previous expedition with the crew that just came home there were two women on the space station in the crew uh, a japanese astronaut uh, one of those women was a russian uh, uh woman and uh you know that's typically been uh you know uh, uh more of the uh, more of the uh, flavor of the crews on the space station that there's been more diversity but of course when we do this podcast uh you know it's a uh, a little uh, a little less diverse but there will be you know more crews coming and going and um, and it will continue to reflect the uh, overall uh human race now so that's what we've got on uh, on space station our space station the international space station so where are those other three well uh as of uh, just uh, a year or so ago uh, the uh, the Chinese now have a uh, a space station. Their assembly began, I think, about two years ago, and they have started now uh, permanently crewing it with uh, with uh, Chinese astronauts, with three at a time. And in fact, just uh, a few months ago in December, they had their fourth crew show up and had their crew hand over. And so now it's the fourth crew in space. And one of them, by the way, is a Chinese woman, the first a uh, woman uh, from China to man or crew, I should say, this uh, this space station. So um, so if you take all of that into account, you know, then there is a, 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 a you know, interesting, uh, diverse uh, cross section of the, uh, you know, global population that is uh, physically in space right now. So far, the Chinese have not uh, brought other international partners uh, uh, that are, you know, working with them to their space station. But uh, my understanding is that they do have plans to do that, but I don't, you know, they're, they're not as open and transparent as we are. So, you know, what nations they're partnering with and who that will be and when that will be, uh, uh, I'm, uh, I'm not uh, familiar with, or I don't think they've, they've really released that, but they do tend to do kind of like we do and partner with other nations and, uh, and, uh, and uh, involve uh, more people. <clears throat> so you mentioned that the people who are in space aren't just sort of floating around aimlessly. What are they doing in space? Yeah, so that's a that's a great question. And it, it, there's kind of three main areas of activity that they have to focus on. The uh, the first is, you know, the reason they're there in the first place is to to uh, uh, do science to perform experiments. And why, why do you need to do that in space? Well, what's unique about space? And the primary thing, there's lots of differences, but the primary thing is the microgravity. You know, on Earth, everything we do, whether it's humans walking or or melting metal and combining alloys or, you know, making medicine or trying to build things or whatever are all influenced by the gravitational pull of the Earth. And um, but we don't have that in space in microgravity while you're even though I said you're falling, you know, in orbit, the the uh, net forces on the thing or the people or the experiments in orbit is not zero, but very, 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 very close to zero gravity. And, um, you know, the, the microgravity coming from minor disturbances in your attitude control and you know, things like that. But for practical purposes, it's, uh, you know, we can call it zero gravity, which you've all seen, uh, you know, the astronauts, that's why they float around. That's why they have to strap themselves in when they sleep. That's why they have to 
you know, hold on to handrails and 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 pens and food as Velcro so it doesn't float away. Uh, you know, that's microgravity. So, so, you know, that's the real opportunity is to perform scientific experiments in microgravity to, you know, learn more about our universe, to learn new techniques for, uh, for, um, uh, you know, building things or, or creating medicines and things like that. So, so those experiments are kind of divided into, into five different categories. The first being physical sciences, where, you know, things like what kind of, you know, new, better, lighter, stronger uh, materials, alloys can you make if you can mix them together and form them in zero gravity? What kind of crystals can you grow that might improve uh, electronics and things like that? Uh, that's physical sciences. Then there's life sciences, which are experiments all about the human body and what does the space environment do to the human body and how can the human body uh, be... Um, uh, uh, adapted or, or, um, or, uh, uh, what kind of countermeasures do you have to develop in order to enable the human body to live and operate and work in space for long periods of time? And, and in that, you know, in that case, it's, you know, I said microgravity is the main thing, but there's other things like space radiation, isolation, uh, uh, you know, being away from home in a cooped up, you know, spacecraft for a long time, all of those fall into the concerns of life sciences, and and uh, and uh, uh, performing experiments to uh, uh, to understand that and determine what you can do to uh, enable humans safely to uh, work in space and still be able to come back to Earth and not have any long term effects. Then a third area is you know hey you're up in space you're you're 250 miles above the Earth's surface so uh, you know wouldn't you think that'd be a great place to be looking back down at the Earth and understanding our earth environment studying the effect that humans have on the environment studying non-human uh changes to earth's climate and earth's resources and uh and uh and observing uh weather patterns how to better predict predict weather all of those things fall under this kind of earth observation field of science so that's the third area that they can do from the space station both with you know astronaut participation and automatic you know remote sensing uh, kind of uh, equipment and experiments. Then a fourth area is really aimed at uh, at um, um, enabling us to do the future missions where we leave Earth's orbit and we go out into space, like on our favorite Star Trek shows and other science fiction, where we start to explore the uh, the solar system and the galaxy. And that's technology development. Uh, the space station is a wonderful platform to be able to test new technologies. Like a great example is, is uh, uh, you know, 3D printing. You know, th that's become pretty well known here on Earth, these techniques. And you can, you know, you, you know, normal people now can buy 3D printers and and do things at home. And, and uh, you know, for a while that was kind of a, you know, in the forefront of, of manufacturing uh, technology. But doing that in space is something that would be fantastic. If you can imagine a crew, you know, going to Mars where they're on their own for three years and that you can't take a spare of every single part, you know, with you. So you have the capability to manufacture parts using uh, 3D printing uh, on your space vehicle. Well, we do it on Earth. But again, I said Earth's different. Space is different. So you have to design equipment that can do that uh, that 3d printing and work in a zero gravity environment so uh, and there's lots of other things like that new propulsion technologies new communication technologies new computer technologies all those kind of things that uh, that um, you know those new in inventions uh, if you will are being tested on the space station that then can become available for future missions deeper into space so that's the fourth area and then the fifth which isn't so much doing science experiments but it's you know really important uh you know nasa and the international community believe and that's education and using the uh the uh, inspiring opportunity of people being in space to reach back to uh to earth and uh, and be educators and and support educators on earth in inspiring their students to uh to uh, um, uh stay in school and 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 become interested in uh in science and math and uh, and engineering and uh, technology education so the astronauts spend some of their time 
you know, speaking to schools from space, producing other other um, uh, activities doing in space that then can be repeated by students on the ground and things like that. So those are the, you know, kind of those things that we group into those science experiments. And that's one thing they do. The second, which, you know, we wish it wouldn't take as much time because you want to have the crew doing the science as much as they can. But the crew spend a lot of time just maintaining the space stations, you know, cleaning and housekeeping. Just imagine, you know, how many times people at home dust or vacuum your uh, your uh, carpets or have to unclog your toilets or or mow your lawn, we'll say, you know, all of these things that you just have to do to maintain uh, the operating condition of your living environment. Well, the crew spend a lot of time doing that, cleaning, wiping down surfaces, uh, with, uh, you know, biocide, uh, to keep mold from growing, changing filters in their, in their environmental control, uh, you know, air system, uh, things do break down. You know, I kind of joked about the clogged toilet, you know, they do fix things like their toilets and their, and their, um, uh, communications equipment and, uh, and other things, you know, sometimes the ground has to send up replacement units, so they do spend a lot of time and also in this category of, you know, the station is constantly evolving. And in fact, for the Chinese, you know, they're still early in their assembly sequence. They've still got some modules to at least one big module. And I think a node that is uh, that they've talked about bringing up to expand the size of their space station. And and uh, and uh, even on our space station that essentially is past its major assembly complete uh, still. um uh, we'll we'll replace e experiment racks with things that are new that the ground sends up, and they'll send back the old ones. And and so just you know doing that upgrade and and uh, and new installation activity. So all of that kind of fits into that second category of you know maintaining the space station. And then third, and this is hugely important, is just to stay alive and stay healthy. You know, it's it is. Uh, uh, you know, we do that on Earth and we think, you know, that we uh, we better exercise and we have uh, try to carve out that gym time in our in our schedules. And of course, we all make time to eat, you know, and and try to get good night's sleep. Well, in space, all three of those things take more time. You know, in on Earth, we automatically get a certain amount of exercise just by getting up and and walking around the house, doing your yard work or whatever, because we're, we are fighting gravity every time we stand up. Well, in space, they don't have that. And so they have to do a lot of additional special exercise in order to keep their muscles from atrophying, to keep their bones healthy. Uh, and so that when they do return to earth, they can stand and walk around and they don't have, you know, long-term uh, physiological degradation from, you know, living in a zero G environment. So there's a lot of time spent exercising, you know, even the overhead of eating, you know, we, NASA and those of us that have worked on some of these crew systems and try to make it as, as efficient as possible to produce their meals and, and, uh, you know, eat their meals and deal with the food packaging. But anytime you're doing these things in zero G there's extra overhead of, uh, of, um, uh, preparing your meals and and uh, restraining them and and dealing with the trash and everything uh, afterwards and you know they don't have a dishwasher in space and so uh, you know that takes a lot a lot of additional time and then as I said sleep you know that's very important for these crews to um, um, uh, perform uh, effectively and so getting you know good sleep is always built into their timelines that mission control uh, develops for the crew members so. So those three things, doing the science work, keeping the station going, and then just keeping their human bodies, uh, you know, healthy is pretty much how they spend their time. It sounds like a lot when you put it that way. It, it is. They have busy days. There's very little downtime. They try to, and they do try to, car. and I don't have a metric right now that is how much, but they do try to give them some off-duty time where they can, uh, uh, relax, read, just, I tell you, you know, listening to some astronauts who, you know, spoken at various things or the debriefings we used to get when I was at NASA, most of them in their downtime just want to look at the earth. You know, the space station has a wonderful facility now called the cupola, which is this, it's sort of like this, uh, 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 um, dome, if you will, it's not really round, but it's, it, you know, where you can float up in it and you have windows all around you and above you. 
uh, which provides just an outstanding view of space, of the Earth, of the rest of your space station. And, you know, my understanding is a lot of them, that's really how they spend some of their downtime is just looking at the earth from their unique vantage point but they do do other things you know we have some that take musical instruments up there with them and and do some things um uh, uh of course you know reading and 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 i know we always they always try to keep up with you know big current events you know that nasa will be able to send up you know if there's uh uh, you know, particular, uh, you know, big movie thing being released or or uh, Olympics or things like that, you know, or a particular, you know, a lot of these guys have, you know, are still interested in their, their alma mater sports teams and, you know, trying to provide them with uh, the ability to uh, keep up with those. Uh, uh, so it's it's not all work, but it's certainly most mostly work, you know. So um, you've talked a lot in some of your other presentations about the Artemis program, but so let's start with what is the Artemis program? Certainly, and first let me mention where the name comes from. Uh, I've probably mentioned this on my other other podcast, but I I, I do think it's kind of cool. So, of course, it's uh, very cool. <laughs> Actually, so everybody remembers Apollo program, right? Named after the Greek god Apollo, and that was our our uh, our uh, man to the moon at the time uh, uh, program back in the in the 60s and into the into the early 70s which was you know hugely successful um you know some you know some loss of life with the apollo 1 fire uh the apollo 13 accident turned out to, to be a successful failure but everybody remembers apollo well uh and then we haven't been back to the moon since then well the artemis program is uh fundamentally about sending humans to explore beyond low earth orbit where the space station is and the first stop for artemis program is going to be the moon so where did the name come from well i i love this the artemis if you're familiar with greek mythology is the twin sister of apollo and so uh, so we had the apollo program which sent the first man to the moon and the artemis program will be sending the first woman to the moon and and of course beyond that uh there'll be uh, uh, uh you know just like the space station today there will be uh you know diversity representing the entire uh human uh, population here but but that that um, interesting parallelism between the you know if some people listening may be too young but the real slogan from president kennedy's speech in apollo was we're gonna you know send a man to the moon and return him to earth and that was Apollo. And now Artemis, his twin sister, you know, now will be sending a broader cross-section, including the first woman to the moon, first people of color, you know, and the next man, you know, to the moon. So that's where the name comes from. But it's bigger than the moon. The moon is just sort of the first stop in the Artemis program. Artemis is looking beyond, you know, NASA has always... Uh, uh, you know, had in its sights Mars. And, you know, that's a huge challenge. It is you know, orders of magnitude, uh, more complex, more challenging, farther away uh, than the moon is. Um, but that is still really the ultimate objective of NASA and its human uh, uh, space uh, exploration program. And so Artemis includes that. So it's got three phases where the first phase of Artemis is just get back to the moon, you know, bring that first woman and that next man and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, land them on the moon and, and relearn how to do those things because it's been over 50 years and, uh, and uh, begin to establish that infrastructure to how to get there and, and how to land and how to get back as phase one, just short missions. Then phase two is where we start to stay on the moon. Like we're staying on the space station where we have, habitats that stay on the moon permanently and crews come and go from them and we learn to live off the moon we learn to incorporate uh what we call in situ resource utilization which means using what's there on the moon to uh to live off of the, the artemis uh program is planning to uh land around the south pole of the moon different than Apollo. Apollo was on the uh, equator of the moon, which was at the time easier to get to, given the technology at the time. It's harder to get to the South Pole, but we can do that now because they believe there's water ice in that location. And uh, and with water ice, what can you do? You can get oxygen out of it. You can get hydrogen for fuel. 
Um, and so that that's huge. Those are huge consumables that if you can start living off the moon, makes your your missions easier to uh, to uh, uh, to implement for long periods of time. But that's not the only thing. There's lunar regolith, you know, the the uh, the uh, materials that the surface is is comprised of that can be used to help construct habitats and things like that. So so that is sort of what the the phase two is about is long term uh, stay us on the moon and practicing new technologies for really living off the land in an extraterrestrial environment. And then phase three of Artemis will be about that next step of, of human missions to Mars. And so that's that's what all of uh, of Artemis is uh, is about. And like I said, it was it started as the Constellation program uh, way back in the um, oh what year about two thousand five two thousand six um, under the uh, under the uh, the uh, 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 George W. Bush administration. It uh, evolved then in the next uh, uh, in the Obama administration into. Um, uh, closer to what it is today of kind of evolving what the spacecraft and rockets that were being developed by NASA under Constellation, uh, more to what they look like today. And then under the following administration, under the Trump administration, it was continued the way it was set up under Obama administration and then began to be branded as as Artemis and this uh, effort to put the first uh, woman and next man on. And, and, it, and to many of us, surprisingly, it has really not gone undergone any changes going into the biden administration it is in fact i wrote a i wrote a paper with some other people on this that it is it is historically typical for an incoming government an incoming presidential administration to want to put their fingerprint on human spaceflight and a lot of times that means some pretty big changes of things being canceled and new things being stood up and uh and surprisingly, there's been really nothing changed going from the Trump administration to the Biden administration, continuing full speed ahead with uh, Artemis and continuing to advocate to Congress for the funding uh, for uh, Artemis um, uh, in, under pretty much the same strategies. And there's some advantages to that, if I remember you talking about your paper before, that being able to stay on the same track keeps us from backtracking a little bit oh well hugely and it's a huge you know waste of resources um uh you know it, you know go going back to um oh when i first or my very early days at nasa there was the uh, space exploration initiative uh, that was uh initiated by the first bush uh, uh administration following the reagan administration that was going to do kind of what Artemis is. You know, it was, again, we had little buttons that said Mars or bust, you know, and it was, you know, the same kind of thing. This is way back in the eighties. And, uh, and uh, you know, some money was put into it in the order of, you know, tens or hundreds of millions to start to, uh, uh, you know, begin planning these programs and defining requirements and things like that. But then it was abruptly canceled when you got to the Clinton administration and, and, uh, you know, and for reasons, I'm not saying if it was a good or bad decision, but the point is all of that work, that was a waste, you know, hundreds of millions that wasn't, uh, did not, you know, come to fruition in an exploration program. Even the big changes going from the Constellation program to the evolution uh, under the Obama administration, um, uh, you know, changed uh you know canceled the vehicle canceled the uh what we used to call the aries one vehicle which was gonna be what launched crew uh with the orion spacecraft on top it canceled that so there was a lot of lot of money uh you know spent on bringing that rocket up to its uh preliminary design review phase including a test flight we even flew an aries one x test flight uh back in 20. 10 i think it was um maybe it was 2009 but uh and that was all all canceled um and then evolved into what we now have today as the uh the space launch system rocket which is part of the uh, part of the artemis program but you know so those things are very disruptive i mean it was really it was really a do-over for human exploration launch vehicles going from the uh from the constellation to to what followed 
although the Orion spacecraft survived and it it carried on, you know, through uh, you know through all of those changes, it it changed its mission somewhat. It had to change its configuration. It was originally going to fly uh, first to low Earth orbit to the space station, and then it was changed to be. Uh, to skip that and instead use uh, commercial assets to get to the space station. And so the Orion program had to basically leapfrog over that phase and directly into their moon vehicle phase. uh, That is what we have today. Uh, But so that, you know, that was disruptive, but at least that one wasn't completely canceled, but it always does kind of set you back. And honestly, a lot of us were kind of holding our breath to see what happened. Uh, You know, particularly when you have a, a shorter administration, uh, you know, you don't, you don't get as far, you know, and, and uh, so the potential for having a disruptive change going from the Trump to the Biden administration was there, but, but thankfully it didn't happen. We're the, you know, it's almost like NASA's gotten a, you know, a two-year administration to work down this path, you know? So. so what I'm hearing is without all these political changes, we would have our flying cars by now. We probably would. Yeah. <laughs> I think we would. Well, we may have made it back to the moon if constellation had continued we you know no one can say for sure but we have certainly long passed the date by which the constellation program was targeting the next landings on the moon and so you know now how much would have they stayed on schedule if they continued to have uh you know presidential administration support and congressional support for adequate funding um there's always technical problems, you know, I mean, Constellation had technical problems that it hadn't resolved yet at the point it was canceled. There were some issues with the Artemis one, I'm sorry, the Ares one rocket. Uh, it was, um, it was, uh, basically it was a two stage rocket that the first stage was a solid rocket booster derived from the shuttle program. You know, you've all seen the shuttle and that's the big orange tank and there's the two white tall thin rockets glued to the side or strapped to the side and it was basically taking one of those adding a segment and then putting an upper stage on top and then the ryan on top of that and uh, solid rocket motors just fundamentally operate differently than liquid fuel rockets and 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 uh using that as a first stage and just the way the uh the the launch environment caused by a solid rocket was really harsh and there were some concerns about whether Orion and the humans would could meet their you know survival requirements on top of that rocket something they called thrust oscillation uh, was an issue and so you know it probably would have been solved I don't know but uh uh but uh you know so whether constant this is just an example of had we kept on constellation when we moved into the Obama administration and beyond I suspect we'd be a heck of a lot closer to the moon or maybe there now but uh um uh but we can't you know no one would know for sure (laughs) of course so one of the other wrinkles or new developments that has come in is this commercial space flight commercial human space flight so talk about how that is different from the artemis program yeah certainly well and well and let me pause there and say some of the artemis program is commercial but i'll i'll try to talk about that so but let me i'll start by saying kind of you know what what hasn't been commercial space flight you know for most of our human um existence uh, where we have been uh flying into space and beginning to explore our cosmos uh, for you know 50 some years uh it was strictly being done by governments you know, here in the United States, that means it was using taxpayer resources, tax dollars to build a federal agency called NASA and uh, and 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 uh, uh, fund all the NASA activities using those taxpayer dollars and then government NASA manage, own, operate the space missions, choose who gets to fly people that fly or NASA employees or military people on loan to NASA uh, you know, everything is owned by the government. Now, it uses companies to, you know, contract with and build the spacecraft, but those companies are building only what NASA tells them with very detailed NASA requirements. They're doing it at basically cost plus whatever it costs, NASA's paying for. They don't have any risk in in the uh, in the process. You know, they're not uh, it's not a business venture for them. They're simply taking money from the government and doing what the government says. 
and then uh, and then uh, and then NASA is managing and making all the decisions and and flying who they decide to fly. And the same in other countries. Russia's I have no idea how their how their um uh you know financial uh, uh situation works, but I'm assuming they have probably taxes from the Russian people and and it's the same but it's the same kind of thing where where it's a Russian government that uh, has funded their Soyuzes, their Mir space stations, and and their attempted aborted lunar program back in the '60s, and so forth. And now, and now China actually, you know, still is, you know, very much uh, a government-run, uh, you know, space program. So, you know, that's that's what's not commercial. And so, what's fundamentally different about when we say commercial human spaceflight is that now it's being done not by governments, but by private industry, by companies, by companies like SpaceX, by companies like Boeing, and by companies like Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic, that that now they're putting what we call theirs, they have skin in the game. They are making their own investments, you know, their own venture capital and their own resources for doing development and developing these capabilities with the idea that there's a business case for it and that they'll be able to sell as a service uh, their commercial space flights. And it started really the, the, the uh, I mean, you know, it's hard to pick an exact time because there have been, you know, commercial ventures, uh, you know, building for a long time. But for human space flight, it really started with... Uh, um, uh, through uh, with support from NASA, uh, uh, developing the capability for commercial companies to take logistics to and from the space station. So those aren't crewed missions, but they're certainly supporting human spaceflight. And so uh, a company called, well, it was Orbital. Now it got bought out. It's called Northrop Grumman. And then SpaceX uh, developed rockets and spa and uncrewed space vehicles to take stuff to and from the station and nasa doesn't operate the mission nasa will pay those companies here's you know several million dollars and here's what i want you to take to the space station and that company will say thank you for the money here's the stuff we'll get it there for you and it'll and deliver it to space station that was kind of where it really started and then right on the heels of that was nasa's commercial crew program where instead of using Orion, like I mentioned a little bit ago, under the Obama administration, uh, the uh, the uh, initiative was uh, begun to, well, let's do what we do for cargo, but for humans. Let's let uh, some companies build a capability to fly to and from the station and take humans. Uh, initially, you know, our NASA astronauts or our international partner astronauts to and from the station and we don't have to have a space shuttle replacement we don't have to have that we'll just buy it as a service and it's you know whether you look at it as kind of like you're renting a car or whether you're uh, buying a ticket on a commercial airplane you know that's that's uh was the what the vision and it has come come to pass uh 20 uh was it 2020 yeah it was no it was in the middle of the pandemic pandemic it was november 2020 that the first SpaceX uh, commercially funded and operated mission Crew-1 uh, was launched uh, uh, to the space station, bringing uh, uh, NASA astronauts that NASA just bought the seat for and took them to the space station. Their first flight that was a test flight was in like June of, uh, of 2020, earlier, earlier that year. We still have uh, one other thing that's kind of significantly different is, is there's competition. You know, and, and uh, you know, when NASA kind of in, instigated this, they really believed we don't want just one because then it's almost like, you know, it's a sole source provider. It's almost like what we had before. We want multiple providers. We want a Delta Airlines and a United Airlines and throw in a Southwest Airlines so we can have, you know, price competition and and, you know, try to keep the costs down. And so there is another uh, uh, commercial crew provider, and that's Boeing who uh, hasn't flown crew yet, but they're going to this year. Uh, it's not that far off. In fact, I think it might be April where they're going to fly their crewed test flight. And then it'll be some months after that, that they'll fly their first true commercial mission where NASA paid money for the seats to the station. Now, so then you've got SpaceX and Boeing, kind of like you got United and Delta, uh, you know, offering services to and from the space station. So that's where it started. Well, it has just, you know, really mushroomed since then. Now we have uh, completely commercial spaceflight that NASA has nothing to do with. Um, 
you know, now that we have a, 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 few, a couple of vehicles, uh, 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 there have been missions launched even into orbit that were completely private, nothing to do with NASA. The Inspiration4 mission that uh, flew on a SpaceX, you know, was completely uh, privately designed and funded. And you can watch all about it on Netflix. There's a uh, a, a four-part uh, series on that, which I highly recommend if you're interested in human spaceflight. But, you know, four non-NASA civilians were, you know, privately selected and flown, and they flew, a, I think, a three-day orbital mission doing their own thing. And uh, on and then on top of that, and I, in fact, today's interesting. Today is kind of a big day where um, uh, we also have completely private missions to the space station. Yes, they're going to the space station, which is, you know, NASA plus international partners, but they are not going there to do NASA work. They are going there to do their own work and their own ex uh, experiments. And uh, we've already had one of those fly. It's a company called Axiom that uh, that uh, uh, brokers these missions and and develops the missions and and designs the missions. They contract with SpaceX right now for their vehicle to get to the space station. But we've already done that. We're for non-NASA, completely private gone to the space station, done their own business and come home. Today was a big announcement that the third one of those uh, missions has been agreed to. That is NASA agrees to, yes, you may come to our space station. The second one of those missions is already planned and has yet to fly, but that's a big deal. And we're not the only ones doing it in this country. Uh, completely private endeavors from other countries have flown to the space station. The Russians, uh, when was it? Um uh, I can't remember exactly when it was, but the Russians flew an actress and a movie director slash camera person to the space station to film scenes for a major. I I I I, I uh, was told that this the this is like the equivalent of their Scarlett Johansson that they flew. You know, an actress of that caliber that that flew there to film a bunch of scenes on the space station over two weeks. That will be part of a blockbuster movie that will be coming out sometime in Russia. And so, you know, they beat Tom Cruise up there because he still plans to go. But, you know, so uh, so they won that space race. But um, but that is commercial spaceflight. And, you know, and and, uh, uh, you know, more and more opportunities are available I've just been kind of talking about orbital space flight and getting to and from the space station. Well, now there are at, uh, currently at least two uh, suborbital flights. And what that means is kind of like our first Mercury flight that Alan Shepard flew. It doesn't go into orbit, but it crosses that, that Cayman line we talked about, spends minutes, three, four, five minutes in zero gravity at, as it does an arc uh, uh, above that uh, Cayman line. And then immediately comes back down to earth before orbiting that's called suborbital spaceflight and then we have two companies that have done that and are continuing to do that uh, blue origin has a version that is a rocket with a capsule that goes up and comes back down and lands on uh, parachutes on the on the land with some breaking rockets and then the uh, really interesting different design is the virgin galactic that has their spaceship too uh, design that's carried up by a, a big uh, airplane and then dropped off of that airplane and then it fires a rocket and uh, uh, goes up and does a similar thing where it, it you know crosses that line into space spends a little bit of time in zero gravity and then comes back down but it flies down kind of like an airplane it has this weird they call it a feathering device where it where the the arrow surfaces sort of rotate and and it, able to slow it down before then it resumes configuration like an aircraft and lands lands like an airplane those are the two that are there today there's at least one other in development uh, sierra space used to be called sierra nevada has their dream chaser which is kind of like a mini space shuttle it would launch on a rocket and then land like an airplane uh, is in development and uh, in fact nasa plans to use them for cargo but uh, dream chaser has their own plans for purely commercial human space flight um, and, uh, uh, you know, again, NASA's hands off on most of those activities, although where it can, NASA's gotten smart and is, you know, just like a paying customer in a lot of cases, you know, on some of those suborbital flights, NASA will, uh, they haven't flown an astronaut yet, although they've talked about that using as like a training sort of, uh, thing, but they have flown like little payloads, little experiments, you know, that you can, you know, put in like, like luggage and it'll do a do some uh, short-term zero-gravity experiments uh, 
on those uh, on those spacecraft. So it's it you know the vision that we had back in 2010 or a little bit before of what could happen with a truly commercial human spaceflight economy and business model is really starting to uh, starting to flourish uh, and 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 come to pass. And it's very very exciting, particularly some, you know for those of us that kind of worked in those early days. And there were a lot of naysayers. There was a lot of cultural resistance within NASA to how can you fly someone that's not a NASA astronaut? You know, kind of uh, kind of uh, cultural uh, attitudes and. Uh, and here we are today where William Shatner, our beloved Captain Kirk, has done it. And uh, and Michael Strahan and these actresses, like I mentioned. And, and um, you know, if you watch the uh, inspiration for, you know, very young people and uh, and people with um, physical challenges that, you know, were never able to be considered for NASA's programs, you know, are, are flying these days. And it's just super exciting. It did open up a lot of possibilities and yep. you say they have skin in the game they have a different kind of risk right because then you're doing government contracting you know that you're not going to lose money but you also know you're not going to make more than a certain set percentage this is more the wild west right so they have the incentive to take risks and so there's an upside and a downside to that with human space flight right well, that's exactly right. And, and you know, and we are still in the early days. And that's why, you know, one of the big um, uh, challenges or or unknown still to be worked is that regulatory environment. You know, how much, you know, does the uh, does the uh, U.S. government or for that matter, any other governments need to regulate the safety of these activities kind of like they do for cars and, you know, the FAA exists to make sure that commercial air travel is safe. And so, I mean, I think that's kind of where we're headed is sort of an FAA model. In fact, the FAA is where the initial regulatory um, authority for human spaceflight exists, whether it'll ever split out or not, I don't know. But, uh, but you know, we're learning uh, through all of these early kind of, uh, kind of missions, but that, that is a huge um, uh, part of it is, is yes, these companies have risks, uh, uh, they've certainly put their own money into it. If any of them have a, you know, failure or an accident, and what will the, you know, liability be? What will that cause for their work downstream? Uh, you know, are certainly question marks, and um, and uh, and insurances that they have to have to, you know, uh, hedge their their risk and so forth, is uh, is all part of that. But you know, I mean, but how's that different than? Uh, any other earth-based endeavor that, you know, has either technical or safety kind of risks, you know, it's, yeah, it's space. And so the challenges are different than say ships or airplanes, you know, but, but the, but not totally different, you know, so American industry and, and other countries, industries have been, uh, you know, taking risks like that, uh, uh, you know, since the start of commercial industry and, uh, and, uh, you know, so we believe it's a model that's proven in, in, you know, human existence. Yeah, sure. Well, as and, it and develops, go ahead. Part, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, I, I was going to say as, as all these new things develop and as we get those answers, maybe you'll come back on and you'll talk to us about them. I will certainly. And, you know, maybe, maybe to kind of leave with is we kind of talked about the two as sort of different. There's Artemis and then there's, and there's, and there's commercial spaceflight. And what's really interesting and something to talk about, you know, in the future for the later Artemis missions that we, you know, didn't really talk about today, but, you know, the next Artemis two, and really you look beyond at Artemis three, when we're really going to the moon and Artemis four and beyond, what we're really ending up with is a hybrid between the government-run programs for things like Orion and the rocket, and commercial systems that are part of Artemis. You know, the the uh, SpaceX was chosen to build as a commercial service the lunar lander that Artemis will use to get its its astronauts down from Orion down to the lunar surface and back up to Orion. And so it's a it's a blending of the two. So you can kind of pick what's the right model for this. For, for the right uh, application. And, you know, so that's, that's tremendously exciting. Um, you know, you can go down different paths and you can, you can bring them together under one mission, you know, I mean, we never would have imagined that, you know, 
10, 15 years ago? It's exciting to see the possibilities. It really is. It really is. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. And as I said, we'll have you back on as new, exciting things develop. Absolutely. Yes, we'll look forward to uh, talking to everybody out there again and hopefully see uh, more of you, uh, our listeners out here at, uh, at Starbase Indy 2023. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Starbase Indy podcast. To find more information about our live event this November, check us out at starbaseindy.org or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. See you on the Starbase.